This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Podcorn is great because it allows you to connect with brand sponsors directly without any middleman and negotiate rates yourself. It gives podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control over how and when we monetize while maintaining all of your intellectual property rights. I've used Podcorn for a while now, and so far it's been a very useful tool, allowing even a relative newbie to podcasting like myself to figure out and understand the sometimes convoluted world of podcast sponsorship and monetization. I've used Podcorn to arrange every ad that's appeared on this show, and I plan to continue using Podcorn to arrange ads in the future. So, if you're a podcaster yourself, or plan on starting a podcast in the future, you can find a link to Podcorn in the show notes to sign up now. Thanks to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we charted the players and developments of Ashanti politics after the death of Osegwajo, from the plans of the cunning and ambitious Queen Mother Konado Yadom, who sought to place her infant son on the throne, to the young Prince of Mampong, Osekwame. Osekwame found support among the empire's rising bourgeoisie and Muslim vassals, building a coalition that allowed him to rise to the Golden Stool. When we left off last episode, Kwame had clearly gained the upper hand by 1780. His rebellion succeeded, Konado was imprisoned, and Ose Kwame was now firmly positioned as the new Ashantehene. This episode will chart the contentious and crisis-filled reign of the young Ashantehene. Season 3, Episode 12, Ose Kwame, the Muslim Ashantehene. While Kwame's time as Ashantehene would eventually develop a reputation for instability and chaos, it did not start out that way. In fact, for the first five years of his reign, the Ashanti Empire underwent something of a political cooling period. While tensions still ran at a fever pitch, they mostly boiled under the surface, never manifesting in any sort of rebellion against his reign. And this makes sense. Osekwame's ally, Ponko, had just crushed a major revolt in Mampong, so the message was clear. Ponko and Osekwame were firmly in charge, and any signs of insurrection would be crushed. Yes, many people, including powerful Ashanti elites, were still very upset at Osekwame's ascension to power. But given that they had just suffered through three years of rebellion and civil conflict, I can see why people were fatigued and too tired to rise up in arms yet another time, as well as concerned about the future of their safety if they did so. So, at least for the time being, Osekwame's enemies were either defeated or too exhausted to mount any sort of organized resistance. Muted resentment aside, stability had returned. And, at least for now, this awkward stability persisted. Osekwame, of course, was still a teenager, so most of the true power in government lay not with the young Ashantehene, but with his allies, like Ponko. They did most of the actual governing, while Osekwame waited for his voice to drop. However, due to the fact that these men had to basically govern by committee, they governed carefully and conservatively, not making any major reforms or changes, or waging any big wars, to avoid risking any sort of disagreement emerging among their coalition. But, as we'll soon find out, the young king, Osekwame, was not the type of personality who was happy to play second fiddle to his allies. While he was willing to bide his time as a teenager, this wouldn't last forever. As Osekwame became an adult, he gradually began asserting his power more and more. And, at least for the purpose of maintaining a stable government, Osekwame's newfound assertiveness would prove incredibly destructive. After years of ruling as a king in name only, Osekwame made his first probing attempt to revitalize the power of the office of Ashantehene in 1784. The way he would do this became a recurring theme throughout his administration. 
through the replacement of his old, independently powerful allies with new, weak, dependent ones. Much like his predecessor, Ose Kwame needed to shake up the bureaucracy. His plan was to place new, poorly connected, and hopefully capable enough figures in government. These new bureaucrats would not only be grateful for Kwame's generosity, but they would also be dependent on him to keep their position due to their lack of outside connections. And, after four years of waiting, an opportunity for Ose Kwame to shake up the top of the bureaucracy finally presented itself. In 1784, a minor scandal broke out in Kumasi. The Kumasi Akwamuhene, who, remember, was basically the local Amanhene of the capital city, found himself hampered with accusations of embezzlement. When these allegations came to light, probably not that many people thought much of it. Sure, the allegations were serious, but the official had served successfully and honestly in his position for quite a while, and had developed a reputation as an upstanding member of society. What made this allegation special, however, was the high standing of the official. Due to possessing such an important and powerful position in the Ashanti government, the Kumasi Akumuhene was not sent to any ordinary court to be tried for his alleged crimes. Rather, the person to decide the fate of this high-level bureaucrat was who else but the Ashanti Hene, as was dictated by Ashanti tradition. We don't know how true the accusations of embezzlement really were. But then again, Ose Kwame himself probably didn't know or care how true they were either. He came down hard on the official after ruling him guilty of embezzlement. Not only was the Kumasi Akumuhene fired, as you might expect, but his and his family's wealth and land were requisitioned by the state. And with the position vacant, Ose Kwame now had the power to appoint a new governor of Kumasi, who, of course, was one of his close friends and allies. And this replacement of the Kumasi Akumuhene would not be the end of Ose Kwame's reshuffling of government, but only be the beginning. The next year, in 1785, the levy holding back Ose Kwame's ambitions would truly rupture. That year, Yamua Ponko, one of the most powerful bourgeoisie landowners who had helped Ose Kwame onto the throne, and even led an army against the king of Mampong to secure his young ally's kingship, passed away. Ponko had apparently been quite close with Kwame. Unusually for a man of Ponko's non-noble descent, the Ashantahane organized a grand funeral, which he personally attended as a keynote speaker of Ponko's eulogy. At Ponko's funeral, he had nothing but positive things to say about his former ally, and delivered a heartfelt speech singing his praises. I don't doubt the sincerity of Ose Kwame's sadness about Ponko's death, but the reality was that, in terms of Kwame's political ambition, Ponko's death was the best thing that could have ever happened. During these early years of Kwame's rule, Ponko had become maybe the single most powerful man in the Ashanti Empire, expanding his land holdings and wealth immensely as well as his political influence. With Ponko out of the picture, that left a pretty sizable power vacuum in the Ashanti state, in which Kwame himself could now consolidate his power unchallenged. And the following year, in 1786, Ose Kwame began to do exactly that. He initiated a widespread purge of the Ashanti government. Holdovers from before his reign, bureaucrats who he believed were not sufficiently trustworthy, and especially anyone who he viewed as a potential future challenger, were immediately expelled from their positions in government. Trumped-up charges of corruption, incompetence, and disloyalty were frequently delivered to anyone outside of Kwame's close circle of allies. The punishment for these crimes was almost certainly for the offending bureaucrat to lose their job and have their property seized by the state. In some cases, exile was not an impossibility. For the next few years, Kwame further consolidated his power, to the point where almost everybody in the Ashanti government had been replaced with a dependent, or in some cases, sycophantic ally. 
Kwame's enemies, still too unorganized and exhausted, were helpless to mount any resistance. With nobody left to challenge him, the purged officials were forced to quietly accept their termination and move on. Kwame's purge of the Ashanti government reached its height in 1790. That year, Kwame set the sights of his purge at a position that previously had been thought to be immune from any sort of government shakeups. The Kotoko Council, with its immensely prestigious and powerful membership, had managed to escape the initial stages of the purge untouched. And this shouldn't be too surprising. In previous administrative shakeups, even after the impeachment of Obodom or the rise of Konado, the Kotoko Council's membership remained unmolested. While new members had been added to the council in the past, never before had members of the council been ordered to resign or been fired in disgrace. The Kotoko's membership were simply too respected, too deeply ingrained in the fabric of Ashanti government for the king to casually hand a pink slip. But Kwame needed to do exactly that. He saw one specific spot on the Kotoko as a point of potential vulnerability for his administration. Despite firmly entrenching his allies in much of the Ashanti bureaucracy, he still lacked direct control over one of the most important aspects of running a government, finances. Much of the responsibility and power to manage the country's finances fell to who else but the Minister of Finance on the Kotoko Council. To alleviate this problem, Ose Kwame enlisted someone who you might not expect, a former slave by the name of Opoko Freyfrey. Freyfrey had been born into slavery, but belonged to that unusual class of slaves who we talked about a couple episodes back, who were members of an abusua, or tribe, and could therefore expect a greater degree of autonomy and freedom than other slaves. Additionally, Freyfrey had been relatively fortunate in that he was a domestic slave, acting as basically a household butler to Ose Kwajo. While he still possessed a low societal status, it was clear to everyone who had met him that Freyfrey was an intelligent and capable man. Upon Osekwame's rise to the throne, he recognized the potential merit of this household slave and hatched a plan. Kwame freed Freyfrey from his servitude and promised that he would support Freyfrey's education to become a full-fledged member of the Ashanti bureaucracy. Freyfrey's education consisted of basically on-the-job training, shadowing who else but the current minister of finance, a man named Esomaru. Freyfrey apparently excelled at this training, quickly absorbing information and rapidly gaining an acute expertise of managing finances. And like that, Osekwame put his plan into action. Using his favorite technique, he manufactured a criminal accusation against the finance minister, sending him to trial where who else but the Ashantahane himself would have to oversee the outcome. Needless to say, Esomadu was found guilty, stripped of his position, and placed in prison. In his place, the former slave Freyfrey would be the new minister of finance. For Kwame, Freyfrey was perfect for the position. Not only did he lack any independent connections to other powerful people in the empire, but Kwame had literally been the man to free him from slavery and elevate him to one of the highest positions of power in the government. In Kwame's mind, you can't get a more indebted ally than that. But a problem soon arose in Kwame's plan. Unlike what had happened during the previous purges of the government, Esumaru refused to simply step down quietly. This whole affair was an obvious setup, and the fraudulence of the criminal charges were transparent to everyone following the situation. Aru loudly protested his firing, making Kwame nervous that this could spark resistance among other purged officials. Acting quickly, Kwame reconvened another kangaroo court, and found Aru guilty of several even more obviously trumped-up charges. The sentence? Execution. In a scandalous decision, the former finance minister was hauled out of his prison cell, and publicly strangled to death. Esomadu's execution proved to be the climax of Ose Kwame's purge. Despite the embarrassing conclusion, Kwame had won, and he now possessed a vice grip over the Ashanti state. 
With power secured, Kwame can now begin a long and peaceful reign, right? While he had secured his grip on power, Kwame's purges had, of course, created many enemies, especially among the families and friends of disenfranchised members of the Ashanti bureaucracy. Fortunately for Kwame, this group was not large enough to constitute a mass movement that could overthrow him. However, while few people outside of elite families cared greatly about his purges of the government and bureaucracy, one aspect of Ose Kwame's rule would become a catalyst for opposition to Kwame among the Ashanti common people, his religious views. Yes, I bet you were wondering when the name of the episode would come up. Ose Kwame, the Muslim Ashantehene. If you remember back to last episode, Ose Kwame had been raised in the city of Mampong the Ashanti city with the most sizable Muslim minority. In fact, more than his parents, really, Ose Kwame had basically been raised by a series of Muslim wet nurses, nannies, and other servants. Now, as we've seen already, this entrenched Kwame with an unusual ability for an Ashantahene to interact with the non-noble classes. Remember, Kwame was brought to power largely due to the support of the national bourgeoisie, the non-noble elites of the empire, in opposition to the majority of entrenched nobility. Most of the people he appointed in governments after his purge were also non-nobles, including, of course, a former slave. But this upbringing also infused in Kwame an unusual sympathy for the Islamic faith. Now, the extent of his sympathies is debatable. I've seen some sources frame him as someone who dabbled with and agreed with certain elements of Islamic philosophy and theology, while I've seen other sources depict him as an outright, devout Muslim, praying five times a day and fully practicing his faith behind closed doors. However, it's hard for us to say exactly. After all, if Kwame was practicing in secret, away from the eyes of historians, and refused to make his true beliefs public, we can't really know what his beliefs were for certain, right? Well, regardless of whether he was a Muslim, or just Muslim-adjacent, his sympathies for the Islamic faith would, let's say, cause issues for Ose Kwame throughout his rule. But before we get into that, I think it's long overdue that we establish a better picture of religion in the Ashanti Empire more generally. In the very first episode, we established how religion played a crucial role in the history of the Akan peoples more widely. Alongside political instability, the desire to maintain their traditional faith in the face of expanding Islamic influence in the Sahel is part of what motivated the ancestors of the Akan to migrate southward, where they established the first Akan polities. This traditional faith, called Akom, remained the dominant religion in the core regions of the Ashanti Empire and other Akan states in the late 17th century and beyond. So, what exactly is Akom all about? Well, for starters, Akom is arguably monotheistic. In Akom belief, the universe, the earth, life, and death were all created by Nyame, the one true god who is omnipotent and all-knowing. Nyame is married to one of his creations, the earth, who is often depicted as a separate divine entity, Ya Asisi, meaning literally Mother Earth. However, despite being the divine progenitor of the universe, Nyame is surprisingly not that present in Akan religious traditions. This is because, soon after creating the corporeal universe, Nyame left. It's not like he abandoned humanity or anything. He returns each month in the form of the crescent moon to check in on things. But rarely, if ever, does he personally interfere in mortal affairs. That is not to say that the Akan are completely severed from the supernatural, though. Before leaving the corporeal universe... Nyame, the one true god, delegated responsibility to manage his creation to the Abosom. The existence of the Abosom in Akan religion is the main reason why many outsiders, like European missionaries and Islamic merchants, believed the Akan faith to be polytheistic. Usually translated as spirits, or sometimes even gods, the Abosom are Nyame's creation, who are meant to act as servants on his behalf, 
drawing their power from him to perform his will on earth. In this sense, the Abosom, in my opinion, are less comparable to spirits or gods, but more comparable to the Abrahamic concept of angels. It's easy to see why people confuse the Abosom with being an Akan pantheon, because much of the material worship in Akan religion is dedicated to them. This makes more sense, though, when you consider the more passive role that God takes in the Akan religion. The Abosom, as God's servants, are more likely to hear and answer a prayer or reward a sacrifice than the one true god Nyame himself. Probably the most famous figure in Akan religion is an Abosom, the kind-hearted and intelligent spider spirit, Anansi. If you'd like to learn more about this arachnid Abosom of knowledge and cunning, as well as the different ways that the story of this spirit have spread all over the world from the USA to Brazil to Haiti, you can pledge your support on Patreon and gain access to our dozens of premium episodes, including our new episode on Anansi. Just find us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. Oh, and another thing really quick. On Patreon, we are super close to reaching 100 supporters, which means, as promised, I'll be producing an extra-long super episode about a topic of the patron's choice, though everyone, of course, will get to hear it. So, if you want to take part in choosing the topic of this extra-long episode, or if you just want to help us reach this exciting goal, go ahead and pledge your support. Pretty please. Even more than the Abosom, most of the actual religious practice of Akom focuses on ancestor worship. Anyone, but especially a person of prestigious societal standing, is worshipped as an ancestor. In Akon belief, the spirits of the Akan people stick around after their death, and, due to their mortal origins, are the most susceptible supernatural force to human needs, desires, and prayers. As a result, they are among the most common objects of devotion and sacrifice in Akon. Okay, so this is interesting and all, but what does it have to do with Osekwame? Well, as we talked about in our episode about the rise of Islam back in our season in Aksum, perhaps the single most stringent and committed Muslim belief is the objection to worshipping anything or anyone except the one Abrahamic god. So, from the Muslim perspective, providing sacrifices to the ancestors or the Abosom was a form of idolatry, and therefore unacceptable for a Muslim to engage in. This is a big problem for Osekwame. As the Ashantehene, Kwame had all sorts of ceremonial and religious obligations as well as his job of acting as the head of government. As mentioned, he oversaw the funerals of important noblemen and elites, but also conducted numerous crucial religious ceremonies and events. However, perhaps no religious institution would cause bigger problems for Osekwame than the king's oversight of criminal justice, especially executions. It's important to remember that capital punishment in the Ashanti Empire often blurred the lines between execution and human sacrifice. While the trials and charges leveled at accused criminals were secular in nature, you know, motivated by the desire to discourage crime and levy justice, the actual proceedings of the execution's events were quite religious in tone. The person who was to be executed was offered as a sacrifice to the ancestors. This didn't sit right with Osekwame. Of course, as we've seen, he had no issue with the idea of the death penalty. He had ordered the execution of the finance minister, after all. Instead, it was the act of offering executed prisoners as sacrifices to the ancestors that bothered him. Early on in his career, before his purge of the bureaucracy, Kwame had no choice but to grin and bear it when it came to his displeasure during executions, festivals, and other religious ceremonies. Despite his personal disdain for the practices, he had no desire and was in no position to annoy the other Ashanti elites by refusing to participate in sacred events. Not to mention, his own legitimacy as king was steeped in the lore of Akom. 
Remember, the symbol of the Ashanti monarchy, the golden stool, was called down from the heavens by Anoche a century prior. Kwame's legitimacy came from the fact that he sat upon the stool which contained the souls of the ancestors. It would be a disaster for him to try to fight against the very same religion that his power relied upon. However, that was before his purge. After he had purged his opposition from the bureaucracy, Ose Kwame was feeling a bit more confident. Maybe he could start skipping funeral ceremonies, and maybe he could call off the recital of sacrificial rites given before executions. I mean, who was going to tell him not to? The answer, of course, was nobody in government. But even though nobody was willing to say it out loud, the Ashantahene's sudden refusal to participate in his usual religious obligations was seriously tainting the image of the monarchy. Things became gradually worse throughout the 1790s, as the king began to publicly omit the explicit references to the ancestors in Abasom from his public proclamations. To many in the bureaucracy in Mpanyimfo, it seemed that Ose Kwame was trying to convert the empire into a Muslim state altogether. This, of course, was completely unpalatable to the Akan, whose ancestors, as a reminder, settled in Ghana partially to escape the influence of the Islamic faith. Now, the truth of these rumors are debatable, and they seem incredibly hyperbolic to me personally. But with each passing day of governorship in which he snubbed more and more religious traditions, the rumors grew in volume. Of course, who else was contributing to the spread of these rumors? But of course, the old queen mother, Konado Yadom. Konado, still under house arrest in Kumasi with her now adult son, Apoku, had never exactly stopped their campaign to undermine Osekwame. Until recently, there was only so much she could do in her own home, so her efforts had a minimal effect at best. But, with pressure boiling against the Ashantahene from religious traditionalists, Konado seized the opportunity to remind everyone who was upset about Osekwame's religious policies about how he was an illegitimate king in the first place, and that her child, Opoku, should have always been the one to be put on the throne in the first place. I bet Opoku would have included praises to the ancestors in his proclamations if he was king. Tensions finally reached a fever pitch in 1797 at the annual Yam Festival. Each year, at the beginning of the harvest season, the various elites of the Ashanti Empire gather in Kumasi. There, they would celebrate the occasion for five energetic days, marked by singing, dancing, parades, feasts, and many other festivities. Basically, the Yam Festival was the most important Ashanti holiday, as well as the most fun to partake in. The king, of course, was the headline guest at the festival, where he engaged in several important religious ceremonies, including a ceremony in which he cleaned the funerary stools of previous Ashantahenes as a way to show respect to the ancestors. Of course, the Yam Festival also held some important political significance as well. It was at this festival that the various nobles and Amanhene gathered at Kumasi to take their annual oaths of allegiance to the Ashantahene. Despite his intense disdain for the empire's ancestor worship, the Yam Festival was the one religious event that was simply too important for Osekwame to try to alter or skip. Sure, he had been willing to take his chances on other important events and ceremonies, but the Yam Festival? That was too sacred to even dare to mess with, right? Well, at least that's what he thought until 1797. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. 
Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. For whatever reason, maybe he was feeling a little cocky, or maybe he just really didn't feel like going. Ose Kwame was absent at the most important Ashanti religious festival of the year. The result? Uproar. Across the empire, numerous elites began openly expressing their outrage at the king's decision to skip the festival. And not to mention, all that tension from Kwame's purge and the way he took power was still simmering under the surface. And, of course, Kwame had skipped the ceremony where the Amanhene gave him their oaths of allegiance. It must have not only seemed that Ose Kwame was neglecting his religious obligations, but ignoring his secular obligations as king, too. Soon, outrage over Ose Kwame spilled over into a riot, and Kwame was forced to hold himself up in the royal palace in Kumasi, while angry citizens lined the streets. Their request? Ose Kwame stepped down. But Kwame did not step down, and instead contemplated his next move to preserve his power in the face of such unrest. Sure, people were mad for now, but things would surely calm down in the future. He still had a strong base of support in the Muslim North, and most of the government was still filled with his loyal allies. And maybe Kwame could have remained in power, if not for what happened next. The day after Ose Kwame's retreat to his palace, Opoku Kwame, Konado's son and Ose Kwame's original rival to the throne, fell deathly ill. Due to Opoku's rivalry with Kwame and previously good health, accusations of poisoning emerged almost immediately, with Kwame being the main suspect. Of course, we have no idea if these accusations are true or not. It's kind of hard to do a true crime podcast 300 years in the past. But it really didn't matter. Kwame's reputation was already so tarnished that many of the Ashanti elites were ready and willing to believe the accusation regardless of evidence. As Kwame struggled to fend off the accusation of poisoning, Konado managed to convince one of the guards who was meant to keep her under house arrest to let her escape to Mampong with her other sons. There, they convinced the local nobility and king, disgusted by the alleged poisoning, to rise up in a rebellion. At the head of a small militia, Konado and her allies marched on Kumasi. Kwame, with his reputation thoroughly destroyed by the poisoning accusations and the religious controversies and the government purges, had very few people willing to fight for him in Kumasi. He was overthrown with ease and sentenced to a lifetime of imprisonment. The government underwent yet another purge, with Konado and her supporters either exiling or executing anyone associated with Kwame's administration. Eventually, a new council to elect the next Ashantahene was called, in which the teenage son of Konado was installed as the new official king of Ashanti. However, Ose Kwame did not admit defeat just yet, even from his prison cell. A few weeks into his imprisonment, he managed to somehow escape with the help of his few remaining loyalists. While there weren't a lot of people still willing to fight on Kwame's behalf in 1799, they were still out there. He and his allies escaped to the city of Juaben, where they set up their headquarters and began making preparations to once again fight Konado for control over the Ashanti state. This climactic fight, however, never manifested. Perhaps both sides were tired of fighting, or perhaps they felt that they were at a stalemate, but neither faction decided to make a move to overthrow the other by force. Instead, the outcome was an awkward and prolonged staring contest. From 1799 until 1803, there were essentially two Ashanti governments, one in Kumasi, which recognized Konado's eldest son as the true Ashantihane, one in Juaben, which recognized Ose Kwame, 
and Zero, which commanded the true power over the Ashanti state. For four years, everyone just sort of sat around, unsure of what to do next. However, this final contest would come to an end not through politics, religion, or military affairs at all, but through Osei love life. Upon fleeing to Joabin, Osei decided to get married to a woman he met in the city. However, a few years later, it became public knowledge that this woman was actually his cousin, violating the deeply held Ashanti taboo against incest. His support evaporated with this revelation almost overnight, and Osei committed suicide in shame. For her part, Konado's son happened to die almost immediately after Osei escape, so her younger son, someone who we'll get to know a bit better in our next episode, will stick around for a while. But with Osei suicide, the Ashanti Empire returned, after decades of strife, finally to a relative state of normalcy and stability. So, what are we to make of the drama-filled last couple episodes? I mean, what do they even really tell us about the Ashanti and the state that their empire was in as we move from the 18th to the 19th century? Was this debacle with Konado and Osei just yet another series of revolts and a long, long list of Ashanti succession disputes? Well, no. I actually think that these last two episodes illustrate some really important long-term trends and emerging developments in the Ashanti Empire that we'll really have to keep in mind as we move forward. For starters, let's acknowledge something that should be obviously unusual, but might have gone over your head after a while. Konado Yadom, remember, is a woman. In fact, she's really the first woman to wield such considerable power and influence in the Ashanti Empire, and she definitely won't be the last. Konado is, in this regard, a major trendsetter. Prior to her rise to prominence, the position of the king mother was mostly a reproductive one. Her job was, first and foremost, to continue the royal dynasty by birthing a new heir. Sure, the queen mother had a seat on the Kotoko Council, but in practice this never really amounted to much material power. Konodo changed this. From this time on, the queen mother will not be a ceremonial position in the Ashanti Empire, but a position that wields true authority. For example, after the life of Konodo, the queen mother will always be the one to approve candidates for Ashantahene. She will possess the power to overturn any result of the Ashantahene election, giving her full and exclusive veto power over the selection of the most powerful figure in the empire. So, due to Konodo's influence, the position of Queen Mother of the Ashanti was elevated from a largely ceremonial position to genuinely one of the most powerful and prestigious in the Ashanti government. And, perhaps most importantly, I think Osei time in power really showcases just how fragile the institutions of the Ashanti Empire really were at the turn of the century. While yes, Kwame's attempts to consolidate his own personal power in violation of Ashanti institutions were thwarted, Kwame's downfall wouldn't have happened if not for his religious beliefs. The fact that Kwame was able to so quickly gut and reshape Ashanti bureaucracy to fit his needs, and that he probably would have succeeded if not for the happenstance of his religious views, doesn't bode well for the future of the Ashanti government. However, at least for now, the dark days are over and the internal struggles have calmed. Now, under new management, Ashanti elites will once again turn to expansion and meet on the battlefield with their current and future archenemies. Join us next week as the Ashanti experience unprecedented victories against the Fonti and even face British soldiers in battle for the first time. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com.
by giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sean Burke, Sarah Mpenza, and Tobias Tungland, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.